0: Good morning for those of you who don't know my name is Joe and I am the worship pastor here Today we have a special guest with us that's going to be preaching uh, Pastor Jason Walters I almost said McDonald there for a second <laughs> Jason Walters is the associate pastor slash everything else at Living Hope Marysville. And so we're excited to have him here. He, he focuses a lot on missions, and this is a guy that prays for us. He cares about us, and we owe a lot to him as a church plant from him. And so just know I'm preaching at your church next week. So if you say anything weird, I'm going to do the same. So. <laughs> I'm going to pray, and then we're going to listen to Jason. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just thank you so much for guys like Pastor Jason, who cares so much about your word. And God, I pray that you would be with him now, that he would just speak your word clearly, and that, God, that you would change our hearts, and that as we hear your word, we would grow closer to you. God, we want to give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Amen. Thank you, Pastor Joe. I appreciate it. He is preaching for us next week for our annual Big Give Missions Offering. Um, and he doesn't know this yet, but I'm going to tell him now that if we bring in less money than we anticipate, we're not blaming COVID, we're blaming him. So he better, uh, better bring it next week. Uh, I am so grateful and excited to be with you guys this morning. Uh, it is a blessing. Last time I preached for you guys, uh, it was over in the school. So it is exciting to be here, exciting to see this room packed out. So thank you for joining us. Thank you for allowing me to be here. Um, You know, a a number of years ago, somebody had told me one time that the best thing about preaching at a church other than your home church is that you can say whatever you want and leave the mess behind for the pastor to clean up when you leave. And I hope that that's not exactly what this goes like, but at the same time, uh, Pastor Aaron told me that a couple weeks ago he threatened to throat kick you guys. So... (laughs) He may not care a whole lot anyway, so we'll find out how this goes. But in all honesty, I do pray that this is an encouraging and uplifting message, but also convicting. But more than anything else, everything is said here today, everything that is done here today uh, through service, through prayer, through the reading and proclaiming of the word, through singing, everything would be uh, to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And I'm grateful that I can be here with you. So go ahead and do me a favor. Grab your Bibles, turn them on, open them up over to uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, Pastor Aaron asked me to continue your series, uh, Joyful, as you guys are getting ready to step into your annual October uh, Ghost Stories uh, series starting next week, and we're going to be in Philippians 2, verses 14 to 18 this week. And I don't know how you do it at Living Hope Columbus, but I like to have everyone stand in honor of reading God's Word, so please stand with me as we read together Philippians two fourteen through 18, and God's Word says this. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars. By holding firm to the word of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even as if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have the incredible opportunity to gather as a body of believers to come together to worship and praise you. Father, I pray that everything that's said here today is not my words or anyone else's but yours. We pray that if I say anything that stands against you, Father, that they won't hear it, that it will be blanked out of their mind, Father, that they'll only hear what you would have them hear today. And if there's anyone here today, Father, who does not know you as Lord and Savior, today would be the day that their lives are made new and they go to chase you forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're all going to go ahead and take a seat. So as we look at this passage today, the first thing we have to do is recognize where we've already been. And where you were last week, you looked at this idea of working out your salvation, of growing in maturity, of taking some responsibility for your own growth and your own maturity, and trusting that the Holy Spirit will bring that growth in your life. You're told to work it out. And this week, we're going to be challenged to walk it out. And I've titled this message now, Walk It Out. To work out and walk out your salvation is this process of sanctification in the life of a believer. And sanctification is one of those areas that the Christian life, that the believer has some measure of control over. And as Paul continues in this passage, he points to things that the Philippian Christians and you and I can do that we need to keep in mind to help us grow. Things that we need to do to grow in the understanding and likeness of Jesus. Things we can do to walk the walk to walk out our growth and maturity. And the first thing he says is, do not complain, argue, or grumble. Look at verses 14 and 15. It says, do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Who here has kids? Yeah, my wife Kate and I, we have four of them. Uh, Your kids ever complain about anything? I don't want that for dinner. I don't, I don't like my toys. I don't like my room. I want this. I want that. that. So on and so on. As a parent, does that drive you crazy? The little freeloaders, they get free rent, <laughs> free clothes, free food, free education, free housing, free advice, free everything, and they have the nerve to complain about it. Would we put up with that from anyone other than our own kids? It drives you crazy. How do you think God feels about you? He looks down on us and thinks, the nerve of these people, I imagine he looks at us and thinks, you hated me. You were my enemies. You set yourselves against me and cursed my name, and even still, I sent my son to die on a cross for you. I gave you the free gift of salvation. I bless you every day with breath and life. I bless you with my creation. I bless you with friends and family, kids, jobs, housing, and so on, and you deserve none of it. What you deserve is my wrath. And here you are complaining and grumbling. Hey, look, I love you guys. I don't know most of you, but I love you. I love my church family back in Marysville. I love my community, but I am not going to send my son to die for you. And I have two of them, so I've got one to spare. And I'm not sending either one of them to die for you. Especially if I knew that you had declared yourself my enemy and that you hated me and cursed me. God sent his only son to be nearly beaten to death and then violently nailed to a cross for you. You don't deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that you deserve an eternity of torture, torment, pain, hate in a very real place called hell. Instead, he had his son sacrifice for you. And if for no other reason than that, every single complaint that you voice is an affront to the God who's given you more than you could possibly deserve. Man, we complain about so much stupid stuff. A lot of times churches are the worst. People complain about music style, song choice, brightness of the lights, chair comfort, carpet color, pews versus chairs, so on and so on. And we're going to get to this a little bit later, but if you guys had any idea, even an inkling of an idea of the type of sacrifice that your pastors make on your behalf, you'd never even consider complaining. And I'm not going to say that you do complain. I'm just warning you against it because that's what Paul does here. It also means that we're not to get into disputes or arguments. Facebook has never seen a single person converted to a new point of view because of something said on Facebook by somebody else. It's never happened. You're never going to be so eloquent and deep in your writing that you're going to change somebody's mind about something. And besides, even if you aren't arguing, statistics show that most of the time when we post something on Facebook that's an opinion of ours, we're almost always speaking into an echo chamber of people who agree with us. And if they don't agree with you, they're going to take it as an attack on them, and then there's going to be a fight. You can't be an effective witness if you're arguing on Facebook. Don't angry post on Facebook. That's what Twitter's for. <laughs> and I don't post there either. It doesn't matter. Paul says this with a different spin, though. He says that the reason we shouldn't complain or grumble or argue points down to, digs down to a deeper level. With this next verse, Paul is pointing to a heart issue. So when Paul says that we're not to argue or grumble or complain, he's not saying simply keep your mouth shut. He's saying don't even think these things. Sin always starts in the heart. An outward expression of sin is always an expression of sin that's already started and brewed and marinated within, within the heart. So inward complaining and grumbling is to be avoided as well. Why? Well, as Paul says in verse 15, so that we can walk in purity. So that we can walk in such a way that no one can even accuse us of wrongdoing so that we can be pure. That's a heart thing. Purity is not just an outward expression, it's an inward reality. Everyone gave Mike Pence a terrible time um, several years ago about not spending time even professionally, uh, one-on-one with a woman other than his wife. But when the Me Too movement took place, who was one of the few prominent people that had zero accusations against him? Pence live in a way that if someone was to accuse you of something, the people would look at the accuser and say, that doesn't sound like the guy I know. Because here's the deal. We walk every single day among a people that don't know Jesus. And every day we see the effects of that. People are perverse and crooked The idea that truth is an individual reality rather than an absolute reality. And we see it clearly with the insanity of gender stuff, and it's a mess, and it just keeps rolling. Now there's semi-major publications that are producing articles and videos and TED Talks trying to normalize pedophilia. We live in the midst of a generation of darkness. But Jesus, who said that he is the light of the world, calls us the light of the world. And Paul says that we are to shine like stars among the darkness. We are to be bright Not so that people see us, but so that they see Jesus. We are to be a light to the truth, not a light unto ourselves, because after all, the light is not ours in the first place. We're simply reflecting the light of Jesus. Satan fell from heaven because he, he got this confused. His job was to reflect the light of God to the world, but he started to think over time that he was the source of light, that he could be God rather than a servant of God. And the point's twofold. One, grow in maturity as a Christian, sanctification. And two, be a blameless witness, a light to the world. We should be maturing in such a way that we can step into the darkest corners of this world and allow the light of Jesus to overwhelm the darkness. We must be in a position to charge hell itself. And we can't do that if we're not mature in our faith. We can't do that if we're dragging the baggage of a bad witness along with us. Paul tells us to work out our salvation and also to walk it out. Don't complain, argue, grumble. And also, number two, hold fast to the truth. Verse 16, by holding firm to the word of life, then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. In 1980, a woman by the name of Rosie Ruiz, she entered the Boston Marathon. Now she had never, prior to this point, competed in a major marathon at a major level at any point in time before. She was an absolute unknown. However, she crossed the finish line in first place, a mile ahead of the next female competitor. She blew the field out of the water, which is strange for somebody that nobody had ever heard of before, running on the biggest stage in the world. Well, it turns out that Rosie entered the race. She ran for a few miles hopped off the course, hopped on a subway, rode it for 16 miles, hopped back off the subway, entered the course again a mile from the finish line, and finished. It only took about 24 hours for that to be found out and discovered. And she's probably the most famous marathon cheater in the world. And we might find that humorous or shocking or appalling, but here's the deal. Some of you became Christians 20 years ago, 20 weeks ago, 20 days ago. And at first, you're ready to run the race. But at some point in time, you decide to take out, step off the course and hop on the subway. And you're hoping to ride it to the end to hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. But when God opens the record book, when he opens your checkbook, when he opens your date book, he is going to find that you stepped off the field and you didn't perse- persevere until the end. He's going to find out that you coasted. And he's going to look at you and say, you don't get the reward because you didn't run the race. You didn't follow the rules. We're called to hold fast, to persevere, to endure. The Christian life, without question, is not the easy life. It's much easier to run a marathon if you don't actually have to run it. It's much easier to live a life that you can do so on your own terms. However, listen to me. It might be easier, but it's not better. And there's another side to this. Your perseverance is not just about your race. It's about your pastor's race also. Look at what Paul says here. Hold firm to the word of life so that I can boast in in judgment that my labor and my race were not run in vain. What that means is if you don't hold firm to the truth, to absolute truth, if you step off course, if you fall into false teaching, if you don't hold fast, you're wasting your time. And not only are you wasting your time, you're wasting your pastor's. If you do not hold fast to the truth that was shared with you by your pastors, then you say, or they are laboring in vain, that their race was run for nothing, that the time and the work and the energy and the effort and the love and the passion that they put into every single thing they do for you is wasted. It was done in vain. Imagine that you uh, are living a comfortable life and you inherit $100,000 and you want to buy something nice for yourself. So you you love cars, so you're going to buy a classic car. So you find somebody who's really knowledgeable knowledgeable about classic cars, they're a friend of yours, and they start showing you all these cars, and they start talking to you about all the details and and filling you in on what's good, what's not good, what you want, what you're looking for, and they're really helping you and walking alongside you in this. They take you to look at some of them. They invest a lot of time. But you decide, you know what, that car over there looks really nice, and that looks like a really good deal. I'm going to go buy that one. And you don't consult your friend. The, friend looks, the deal looks like a great deal. You don't ask for his opinion. You just go buy it. It turns out to be a fake. It turns out to be an imposter. Not only have you wasted your money, but you've wasted your time and all these cars, looking at all these cars, but also your friends who helped you look for them all. Your pastors care deeply about you. They care deeply about making sure that you know the truth and you hold, you hold to it both in knowledge and in action. And if you turn from that, it's destructive. We're talking about building up your faith today. We're talking about how to build, not tear down. And it would be one thing if it only tore down your faith. But part of the issue here is that it rarely only harms you. At Living Hope Marysville, we're currently walking through 1 Timothy. is Paul's letter to Timothy on how to build and structure the uh, local church, the household of God. And in it, he is clear that false doctrine and lies can easily creep into every part of the church and lead people astray when one starts to go down the wrong path. I say this all the time in Marysville. Your life isn't about you. You weren't saved for yourself. You weren't created for you. You exist solely for the sole purpose of the glory of God. So you might ask, well, what does it mean to hold firm to the word of life? It means that you believe and you live the truth. It means that you don't just take these things into your heart and know them. It means that you walk it out in your daily life. It means that you, every day, wake up and dive into God's word. It means that you commune with him in prayer. It means that you live out what his word is teaching you. One of the greatest dangers in the lives of Christians is to know the truth but not to experience it. To have a head knowledge but not an experience. J.D. Greer, author and pastor, he says this. He said, Almost all of your spiritual problems come from a lack of sight because what you know with your mind has never been known or felt with your heart. Let that sit for a minute. Let's look at it another way. One of the coolest things I think in the world would be wingsuit flying. You guys ever seen the wingsuit flying? They jump off a mountain, they jump off a cliff, they jump off a a plane, and they're just wearing a suit, basically. It allows them to essentially fly over a long distance. Now, I could study aerodynamics. I could research the materials used in the suits, how they're designed. I could even meet the people who stitch the suits together. I could buy the suit and the helmet and the GoPro cameras to record it on. I could know all the best places to do it. I could know the furthest anyone's flown. I could know the fastest anyone's flown. I could know everything there is to know about wingsuit flights. I could even join a club for wingsuit flight enthusiasts. I could talk to people who've done it. I could debate the finer points of wingsuit flying. But until I've done it myself, until I've personally strapped on the suit and jumped off of a mountain, I have not experienced it, I might know everything about it, but that's completely different than actually jumping off a cliff and flying through the air. There's a fundamental difference between intellectually knowing what the Bible says and walking it out. And if you aren't walking it out in a very real and experiential way, you don't truly know Jesus at all. You cannot claim to know Jesus and his overwhelming grace if you aren't experiencing it in your life. You aren't called to live like you did before you met Jesus. The Bible says you were born again into a new life. You were given a brand new life when you became a Christian. Your Your new life should look nothing like your old life. It should not even remotely resemble it. The old one is dead and gone. Those who are living a new life don't live like the dead man of yesterday. That difference is the difference between knowing and experience, between talking the talk and walking the walk. Man, you got to hold fast. Grip it tight as if your life depends upon it, as if the life of those around you depends upon it, because it does. Paul tells us to walk out our salvation. Don't complain, argue, or grumble. Also, hold fast to the truth. And finally, he tells us to sacrifice everything. Look at verses 17 and 18. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. In the same way, you should be glad and rejoice with me. Sacrifice everything. 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 But here's a problem. Some of y'all are too busy chasing the Joneses to chase Jesus. The problem with other Christians is they want to Walmart Jesus. They want him at a discount. As long as he doesn't cost too much, we're all in. But if it's going to be full price, going to take all we got, we're going to go shopping somewhere else. Others want a Sunday morning, Jesus. They want to go to church. They want to raise their voices in prayer from 10 to 1130 on a Sunday morning. But as soon as a room needs painted on a Tuesday evening or a Thursday evening or a couch needs delivered on a Saturday morning, they're not showing up. That's not the schedule they uh, signed up for. Others are like the big boy home run hitters in baseball. They're always hitting dingers. They love the glory and the cheer of the crowd as they circle the bases, but ask them to drop a sacrifice bunt, and they look at you like, who do you think I am? Don't you know all the good I do and the crowds I attract? You want me to do the dirty work, the small things? Others have a best friend named somebody else. Anytime there's a need in the church or the community, they turn and say, somebody else will do it. I don't need to give to that project. Somebody else will. I don't need to make my kids skip their sports games and practices for that thing at church. Somebody else will take care of it. As a side note, because this is a hot button thing for me, if you're skipping church for any reason at all, for kids' sports, for vacation, for sleeping in, for family visiting you, for any reason other than a legitimate illness or emergency, you're saying that Jesus is secondary to all those things. If you have kids and you're telling them that Jesus and his body don't matter as much as those other things, that's what they're hearing from you when you don't go to church. We are commanded as the body of Christ, the body of Jesus Christ, to gather together for the building up and encouragement of the body. You need to be so committed to the gathered body of believers that no one in your life, especially your spouse and kids, look at you and say, Are we going to church tomorrow? Go to church every week. Paul sets an entirely different standard here. He uses this imagery of a bottle of water being poured out. He says that we are to be just like that. And your pastors live this out so well. And Paul says to imitate them, emulate your pastor, which in your case means you need to spend a lot of time at Walmart, apparently. But seriously, Joe and Aaron are amazing examples of this. They're both phenomenally talented and gifted leaders and preachers. And Joe, at very least, is a very good singer. They're gifted church planners and ministry leaders. Yet it's never been above them to load a trailer full of mattresses and deliver them to the people who are the least among us in this community. Paul says that we will, he will rejoice and be glad in the sacrificial service of faith to others. And were it to be the same way, the sacrifice of the Christian life is not for some just super breed of Christians. Our, of our four kids, our youngest are five, six, and seven years old, and they are obsessed with the Power Rangers. And these power rangers have special abilities and powers, and and only they can do what they can do. But that's not what the Christianity is supposed to be like. We're all given the same spirit with which we're all called to sacrificial service. And one of the questions I've heard sometimes is, well, how do I measure sacrifice? How do I know I've sacrificed enough? And the first thing I'd say about that is if you're even thinking that question, then you haven't given enough. Because reality is we are called to give every single thing. Everything we own is for the glory of God, for his own glory. Everything that we do is service to God. Every breath we take is to be used to make Jesus known. We are to expend every single ounce of our lives and sacrifice to God. Look at this visual illustration of what Paul is talking about here. You guys are going to get a little wet. I apologize in advance. Paul talks about being poured out as a drink offering. This is not what he's talking about. I went to church twice this month. I put $20 in the offering plate this morning. You know who you are. I invited a friend to church because he asked for a recommendation for a church. While cleaning out my garage, I donated an old kitchen table to the Finding Hope Center. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He doesn't mean that you pour one out for the homies. What he means is that you pour until there is no left to pour. A continuous flow of outpouring until you reach the end of the race. nothing left to give completely poured out Joe next week is preaching for us and he's going to be preaching from a similar passage in second Timothy look at verses six through eight it says for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is close I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. There is a crown reserved for me of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. He says he ran the race. He fought the good fight and he finished it. He stuck it out to the end and he has been poured out, the bottle shaken until there's not another drop remaining. Give everything. Because waiting at the end of the race, at the finish line, is the crown of righteousness reserved for those who walk out the Christian life until the very end, until there's nothing left to give. I'm going to ask the worship band to come back up on stage. But there's a much more pressing issue here that I need to address as I wrap up. Nothing I said today, nothing, nothing, I talked about today matters even a little bit if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. I mentioned earlier that what each of us deserves is the very wrath of God, which should terrify you. I hear people sometimes say that only God can judge me, which one is false, and number two should make you pee your pants. The wrath of God is what you deserve. Every sin that's ever been committed will be accounted for, will be paid for, and it can either be paid for by the unrepentant sinner in hell, or it can be paid for by Jesus. It has been paid for by Jesus. Because the Bible tells us, the word of life tells us, that God has placed his wrath on his son so that those who believe in him and call on him to save them, repent of their sins, place their faith in him as Lord and Savior, they will be saved. And they will receive the gift of eternal life. And it's a free gift that will cost you nothing and everything at the same time. Every time I preach, I issue this exact same call. It's the invitation that Peter issued on Pente- at Pentecost in Acts 2. He said this, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For That promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. If today you are here and God is working at your heart, calling you to believe, then today do that. And as we continue to worship through song, I'm going to be standing right up here up front. I'd love for you to come and talk to me. And I will pray for you and I will celebrate you. And the Bible tells us that the angels in heaven will rejoice themselves. What a day that will be. And I promise you, I will make sure that Pastor Aaron and Pastor Joe follow up with you, to connect with you on what's next. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your son. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of the story that you're writing in this world. Thank you for allowing me just in Living Hope Marysville to be a small part of the story you're writing here at Living Hope Church Columbus and the difference you're making in the lives of people here in Northwest Columbus. God, we thank you. I love you so much. We love you, but we know that's only made possible because you first loved us.